We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The names behind the numbers. The stories behind the names. This is the Her Hoop Stats Podcast with John Little. One of the reasons why I feel as though I was successful in my fight against cancer because of how rigorous my treatments were was because I knew that if I didn't eat, I couldn't go to practice. I knew that if I didn't do the certain things that I needed to do, I couldn't coach basketball. The biggest newsmakers, the best storytellers, the Her Hoop Stats podcast. Here's your host, John Little. Welcome into another edition of the Her Hoop Stats Podcast. What a summer it's been. We just keep rolling. Great to have you here. I'm John Little, your host. And man, we've been pumping out some great content for you, including our Unplugged segment that we put out in the middle of each week now. And I'm sure we're going to have one this week to talk about some of the big things that have happened in the WNBA this past weekend, like Liz Cambage on Sunday with her op-ed basically in the Players' Tribune, her article talking about mental health, what an important article that was. Also, the Dallas Wings getting into it with the Phoenix Mercury as well and the coverage associated with that melee on Saturday. A lot to talk about this week, so make sure to look for that Wednesday night, Thursday morning here on the Her Hoop Stats podcast. Hey, make sure you rate and review us and check out some of our other podcasts like last Monday Cheryl Reeve the head coach of the Minnesota Lynx was our guest that is officially number 16 also numbers 14 and 15 on the docket were little bonus podcasts of the Dallas Wings game against the Las Vegas Aces and that was a really cool play-by-play podcast to do but it's cool not just because you get to hear us doing play-by-play of the game but there are interviews inserted throughout the podcast and so on the Medium article, I've given you exactly where those are. So if you want to fast forward to those, hear from some of your favorite players.
players on both sides. Uh, that's another way that uh, you can scratch that itch of WNBA basketball. But we're diving this week into the college level. And one of the most inspirational stories of the last few years in women's college basketball is Angel Elderkin, the head coach of the Appalachian State Mountaineers. A couple years ago, she dealt with and beat stage three endometrial cancer. And her team, after rummaging through a few seasons of being under 500 in her fifth year this last year, finally really broke through wins-losses-wise. They had been doing some great things anyway. But as far as their win-loss record, they won the WBI championship, the Women's Basketball Invitational, racked up 22 wins. It was a breakthrough year for Angel Elderkin's squad. She's just got such a great story. Going back to her early days as a coach, taking steps forward and then intentionally taking steps back in order to get where she needed to be in order to become a better coach. This is an inspirational story in so many different ways. So please enjoy our conversation with Angel Elderkin. No, I'm excited. Uh, it's getting close to basketball season, so any opportunity I get to talk basketball, I love it. You guys had just such an incredible close to last year, and I do want to get to that here in just a moment, but uh, I want to get your story first, because a lot has been written about you over the last few years, and we'll certainly uh, get to your fight with cancer here in a few, uh, but I think your story is fascinating even before that, and so I want to take you back to even your earliest days with basketball when did you know that you wanted to turn it from a playing career to a coaching career you know I was in my last year in college at the University of Southern Maine I had gotten an ankle injury and my college coach and I were meeting and we were just talking about the future and what it looked like and and he had just brought up he's like you know you you do an exceptional job for us at camp you do a really good job I really think that you should look into coaching and I kind of like took a step back. I was like, really? And he was like, you know, the game hasn't always come easy to you. Um, I wasn't the most athletic, <laughs> wasn't the quickest, wasn't the fastest. Um, but it did enable me to like really break things down and really try to learn and really try to teach. And so in that moment, he just had mentioned, you know, that path to me and then kind of said, you know, there's graduate assistantships. There's so many ways to do it. Um, but he was the one um, that really proposed it to me for the first time. And so did it take a little bit of convincing there? Or did you think about it for a few days or did you just go, well, I got nothing else to do? And let's <laughs> <laughs> no, it was kind of interesting because during the summer, and this is the one thing that I wish players did more of, um, during the summer, I would go and travel and I would, I loved basketball camp. It was my favorite thing to do. And I would, I was in the New England area. So I went to Providence College. I went to Holy Cross, um, obviously Southern Maine, but I just traveled around and I spent different weeks at different colleges working camps because I love the game so much. So at that time, my coach had kind of said, you know, you, you did all the work, you, you worked at all these different places. Now, why don't you try to reach out to some people and some connections that you made and see if you can take the next steps and that he would do the same. So, you know, we, we were taught, we talked about it. I was doing education at the time. So it wasn't like that far off from teaching. Mm -hmm. um, so then we just kind of brainstormed together and I just started making a list of some contacts and seeing where I could end up. Well, and uh, so it, it moves on. And like any other coach, when they're getting their start, you bounce around just a little bit, East Tennessee state uh, for a couple years and then on to Siena, 
when you're at Siena and you're there for four years as an assistant, you've said before, and I, I loved your Players' Tribune video. If anybody hasn't seen that, I, it's just it's just beautiful, and I'll make sure to post it along with uh, when we uh, put the podcast out there. You talked about your motivation to go to Tennessee and learn from Pat Summit and learn from the best. What was the first uh, impetus of of that going from, yeah, I'm in a full-time position, I'm comfortable at Siena, but this is going to help me more. How did that all work together? That's a great question. And I've been, it's really been on my heart lately um, with the passing of Kathy and Glace. She was the head coach at Boston College when I was an assistant coach at Siena. She had a couple openings that came about throughout my path. And I kept going into my um, boss's office, Gina Castelli, and I kept saying, I want to work for Kathy and Glaze. I want to get to Boston College. How do I do it? How can I do it? Can you call her? You know, just really eager. Hmm. And so we went through that process and, you know, Kathy just came back to Gina and said, you know, she just doesn't have enough experience. She doesn't have enough experience. And so at that moment, it, although it was, it was hard to swallow, it was such a great lesson because I was in my my fourth year and, you know, started off as like the non-recruiting coach because at the time the third assistant didn't recruit. And then every year I'd gotten bumped up and I've gotten more responsibility. And here I was thinking, oh, I'm ready to be at the next level. And so when, when she had come back with that feedback, um, I was like, well, I guess I still got a lot to learn. And then I was on the recruiting trail. I had done an internship at the University of Virginia doing camps, my passion. And I ran into Nikki Caldwell. And I was just telling her, I said, you know, Nikki Caldwell was an assistant at Tennessee at the time and said, you know, I, I really tried to move on this year. And I didn't have an opportunity. You know, people are saying I don't have enough experience. And so my good friend, Cameron Neubauer, he's at the University of Georgia. And he mentioned, he's now the head coach of Florida. And he mentioned that there are graduate assistantships that maybe I could take at like a Georgia. And she said, wait, wait, wait a second. You're thinking about going to Georgia? And I was like, well, you know, Cameron and I were just talking, like, how do I get experience? And then the next day she had me interview with Coach Summit on the court. Mm. And we just we sat there and we talked about it. And Coach Summit just wanted to make sure that I understood that if I was going to be a member of her coaching staff, that no job was too too small for me, um, that I was going to be, you know, invested in their culture and, and their definite dozen. And it was just a, it, that whole thing. I, I still to this day, I see coaches on the recruiting trail and they'll be like, remember the time you were in Disney interviewing with coach summit? Like I do remember that. It's a moment I'll never forget. Oh my, I bet it's just burned into your brain. Just that experience for those couple years that you were there. Talk about how just having that, and we'll get to other aspects in a moment, but just having that on your resume, even if it's, quote, just a graduate assistant and then a video coordinator position, but working under Pat Summit, how has that helped you in your career? It helped me just being able to watch um, Coach Summit act as that CEO of her you know, organization and understand that you win in life with the people that you surround yourself with. And she always said that to me. Whenever things happened, she would always turn and say, this is why you got to have good people around you. And, and I just love that about her. I mean, I remember when we won the national championship, it was like, you know, Jenny Moshak, one of the trainers, the assistant coaches 
were were provided with you know these cars and it was it was great at the time but it was just like this ultimate gesture of gratitude in terms of how important a strength coach how important you know everybody is in the organization and I think at that moment in time it allowed me to like take a step back and observe you know like Hollywood like Nikki Caldwell Dean Lockwood Pat Summit Daniel Donahue watch all these people who I thought were like experts and then try to pull from each of them and learn. And honestly, when I went out to be an assistant from that position, I think I had appreciation for just being really good in whatever role I was given. We're visiting with Angel Elderkin. She is now the head coach of Appalachian State, and it's fascinating to get your background. And the coaching world uh, is just such an interconnected place. It is amazing. As I, you know, um, just looking at your resume and you're talking about these names and then these names, Nikki Caldwell turns from assistant at, at you know, at Tennessee to the head coach at LSU. Uh, you're talking about uh, Kelly Harper as well. And, you know, it, we know that uh, she's circled back and, and she's back at her alma mater as the, as the head coach after being at Missouri State. It's just such an amazing fraternity uh, of people people. What is the key uh, you think if you're going to tell somebody, a a young angel coming out of Southern Maine or somebody that's like that, how can they make those connections with other coaches and do the right thing in order to in order to help themselves the best, but do it in a tactful way along the way? You know, we kind of like talked a lot about this as a team this season is kind of like be where your feet are. Mm. And I, I honestly, and I will, I'll tell you this story because I don't think people truly get it. Like when I was at Tennessee, I was convinced early on, maybe Pat didn't know who I was. Okay. Like I was just behind the scenes and I was just doing whatever to make the organization run, whatever they needed me to do. I was doing it. I got in the office early. I stayed late. And I didn't even know. I'm, I'm telling you, I was like, I wonder if she even knows what I do. I know I drop the tapes off. I get her this. I do this. And then we're at Notre Dame. And it's in my first year. And it's going to be loud. And so they had suggested maybe I make our play call cards on laminate paper. You know, just little things. Whatever the coaches needed. Whether they were going to use it, I was doing it. And then in that moment, we were in the practice facility. And Coach Summit comes over to me and, and says, you know, I know you were a full-time coach um, prior to taking this job if we created a full-time position for you next year, would you stay with us? And I was like, I mean, at that moment, I'm like, is this really, this was like a dream come true. And I was like, absolutely. But it was in that moment, I think it's such a teaching moment to, to young people today is like, if you go in and you do the work um, and you become obsessed with the details and being that go-to person, you never know who's watching you. You, you. you just never know. And whether it was, Coach Summit or her assistant saying, hey, she's really valuable. We got to keep her. You know, that that's the true story. And I think that's just a lesson for young people as they get into our profession. Absolutely. Uh, that is just great stuff. So I, I just want to know at what point along this journey or if it was early on, you put your sights on. I want to take this as far as I can. I want to be a head coach someday. Was there a specific moment there? You know, when I was with um, Coach Debbie Ryan at the University of Virginia, she really um, empowered me as an assistant coach um, to do a lot of different things to equip me to get ready for being a head coach. I honestly thought I would leave there someday and be a head coach. I loved the job there. I didn't even think about being a head coach or going and applying at that moment in time because I loved work. I loved working there. I loved being an assistant. And then when she retired, 
um, I had a, I was at a crossroads and that's when Nikki was taking over LSU. And I said, you know what, if I'm going to do this someday and have my own program, how about I go with her in, you know, in a non-coaching role and maybe see her take over a new program and, and what that, what, what does that look like? And so I was able to do that. And I was in a non-coaching role. And then the following year, and this was the best year of my career, um, I took a job at St. John's with Joe Tartamella. And he was becoming a head coach for the first time at a place that he worked for a long time. But that experience, he really made me believe more than anybody, like, you can do this. Um, because he, every decision, we were making decisions together, we were talking things through. And then I left that experience, like, okay, if I want to do it, now's your time, let's start looking, and, and you're prepared. Wow. Well, here's what I love just about your story. You're not making any of these moves for necessarily selfish gain, like you're wanting to move up, move up, move up. You know what I'm saying? And it's it, it, it's all about how can I just improve myself? Where do I fit the best? And I, I'm trying to improve my skills rather than get the best job possible or make the most money possible. I know that's more of an observation uh, than a question, but that's got to be just a huge part of your story as a coach that you can pass along to, to others. Absolutely. Like, it's interesting. Like, I coached for four seasons. Then I took a step back, non-coaching role for two years. Then I coached for another four years took another step back to, t you know, everybody kind of says, oh, well, you took steps back to take steps forward. Well, I took time off. I learned, I, I got better at another skill set, And then I, then I went on, but I tell people all the time because now in the women's game, these non-coaching positions are developing with director of player personnel and video. And I have a lot of friends that will come to me and say, well, how do I take that next step? And I tell them, well, you cannot be afraid to take a step back. Hmm. And it's really hard today because like you said, money, the money in our game is growing. Um, people are getting paid a lot more money and, you know, people maybe may not have the support system. My, my family at first, um, when I went to Tennessee, they thought I was crazy. And then my parents got to sit behind the goal when we played Connecticut at Connecticut and they got to see Candace Parker dunk. And then they got to meet Holly and they got to meet, Nikki and they got to meet Pat and then they said we get it now we get why you did what you did and you know I just I just try to share my story and, and let people understand that you know it's not always about the step up and again Angel Elderkin is our guest here on the Her Hoop Stats podcast so let's go to App State I, I heard you talking with Blake Dudonis about this a little bit uh, great podcast by the way I'll, I'll post the link to that too because uh, there's a, a there's a lot of value in a coach talking to a coach of course um, but tell us about how that all developed and, and getting the job as the head coach at App State. Yeah, it was kind of bizarre because I was traveling back. Um, my family lived in Rhode Island and I was in Baton Rouge and oftentimes I would take care of my dogs. And so I would drive them and it was crazy 24 hours, but I would still do it. And halfway was Johnson City where I went to graduate school, um, East Tennessee State. And then, you know, 45 miles from there is Boone. In August of that month, I had been driving through. Um, I stopped in Boone. I was very familiar with App State and Boone because of my time at ETSU. And I was kind of like, wow, um, this would be a really great place um, to work. Um, this community, just everything App State, this would be a great job. Never thinking it was going to open, nothing. Then I get a phone call um, that, hey, guess what? Appalachian State 
is going to open. And working for Nikki at the time, it wasn't good timing. And I went to her and I said, this has happened. Um, what do you think? And she was so supportive. She said, in, in women's basketball, and you can never control when opportunities are going to come. And she was really supportive. She was the only person who actually knew on the staff that I went to interview. We were we were in a recruiting period, mm-hmm. and I had like left the recruiting period, and I had gone to interview. And then the next day I was going to Canada to do a home visit with one of our, one of our top recruits when I actually got the call that I was going to get the job at Appalachian state. But it was really interesting on how it developed. It was an interesting timing on when I took it in October and me, and I went back and forth with it. And Nikki was like, it's, it's, it's going to be different. It's going to be challenging, but every, every opportunity is going to be the same. So um, just having that support, I think, made it a lot easier to go for it. And I want to tell everybody, I mean, there's uh, good things on the horizon because App State is coming off of a WBI championship, 22 wins this year in your fifth season as the head coach, and now you're going into your sixth. So there are good things on the horizon, but it was rocky at first. How did taking over in October, I can't even imagine that, but taking over in the fall, before a season I know you're not an excuse maker in any stretch of the imagination but how does that affect things as opposed to taking over like in an April when you would normally see jobs change hands yeah I think um, one of the challenges is staffing um, because at that moment in time you're either taking somebody from another staff or getting somebody that maybe is not in coaching and so um, throughout the process I was putting together um, the staff so I could kind of show up and say, hey, I'm ready to hit the ground running. I think just leading a group of people um, in trying to lead, you know, you, you get hired and in two days you got to run a practice with kids that don't know you, mm-hmm. you know, and so much of what we do today is built on relationships and so much of coaching is understanding your players and your personnel and, and how to get them you know, how to pull on their heartstrings, if you will. And that's hard to do when you don't know. It's like when you go into a coaching position, like every coach can can run this drill and run that drill and put in this offense and do the defense. And that's such a small percentage of what we do. Um, so I think the challenge became of it, it was exciting in October. You know, it was, it was exciting. They had a new coach. Everything was new, you know, and everybody was excited. But then as it as the grind continued, it got tougher and then adversity hit and then you were learning difference, the differences of other different people. And then recruiting was challenging. That year I had a very good player and there was no plan for, okay, when she graduates, who's the next one? And it's hard to re- replace when you get a job in October. So those were, you know, just little challenges. But I think just stepping in and, and being new and then going into a new conference, there was a lot of different things for our student athletes to have to handle as you guys move through the next three years after that initial year 14 wins you want everybody expects when you when you come in all right well that's the low water mark is 14 and then it's just going to all be up from here um but that's not necessarily the case with what you guys have experienced when we're talking about on the court. What were some of the biggest challenges, specifically 15-16, 16-17, and then the eight-win season in 17-18? 
And so after the first season, you get under your belt again, 14, you graduate some players and then you go into the next season and you're slowly trying to infuse maybe some players that you recruit with the players that are already here. And though, and you talk to any head coach that takes over programs that can present some challenges because you're bringing in players and the players are here. So it's just different talent. And then I think I really started to understand, um, recruiting. I think my first couple years, I felt like we're in the Sun Belt. We have to get this certain type of athlete to compete. We need this kind of player. And it didn't it didn't line up character wise. And mm. so I had to really take a strong look um, after that third season. When I got sick, I think a lot of things changed for me from my perspective on coaching, my perspective on life um, in really um, hit home going back to coach summit of you went in life with the people that you surrounded yourself with. And so at that point, one of the greatest things as coaches we can do is, is do that inner evaluation. I had to really look inside and say, what, who are you? Um, who do you want to surround yourself with? What players over the years have fit with you? What don't fit and how do you change this? And so that off season, um, created that blueprint for recruiting I think we brought in eight kids um that off season I got a couple of two new staff members and we said all right we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna start over okay we're gonna start over every mistake that was made everything that happened okay it happened for a reason to get us to this moment now this moment is when we start building the culture and that eight win that eight win season was the best season I had because it taught every single player on that roster, coaches included, like how to lose. And not to be cliche, but like we had to learn how to lose together in the trenches and in those moments to learn how to win this season. But that eight, that eight loss season was like the greatest gift because at that moment I knew that we had the right people around us to do great things. Because we could lose with all eight of them, we could lose those eight games with all those people, and still be invested, and still walk in the next day, and, and still keep doing what we were doing. Yeah, that's when you know you've got that you're building the right culture for sure. And I've heard you say that about your sickness, and in 2016, you're diagnosed with stage three endometrial cancer, and um, it uh, obviously not only took a toll on your body, but I'm sure it took a toll on your life. And one of my favorite lines from what you talked about in the Players' Tribune video that I saw is that you went from the fear of not being good enough to that fear of regrets. How did that play into kind of what you're talking about surrounding yourself with the right people? It's it's almost like that moment where uh, everything means everything. And I mean, everything means everything. I got to get this right, you know, if, if I want to you know, who who knows if I'm going to live through this. I, I want to be able to be proud of, of what I've put together here. Yeah, I think when you obviously as coaches, you know, everybody's like the biggest fear is like you're going to get fired. You don't do a good enough job. Um, you're not going to be successful. You're not going to win. Um, you know, you get so caught up in that. And I honestly believe that when I got diagnosed with cancer, it was like, this is like life right now and you have sacrificed so much of life um, for this game of basketball, but now you have to take care of you. So then you could take care of 
basketball and those around you. And it just really put in perspective, like this game can honestly make you lose, lose so much perspective of what you want as opposed to what the outside world wants of you. And if you look at those things and you're not living the way with your values and what you really want, you can lose complete perspective in getting cancer. It, I mean, it was a blessing. It was, it was a curse. It was, it forced me to really have to seek perspective on making an impact. And it made me realize that through coaching, it was really overwhelming the lives that I was able to touch because so many of those people reached out and it made me then realize like, this is your deeper meaning. This is your deeper purpose. How do you continue to do what you're, what you're doing, take wins, take losses out and keep making an impact on the people that you surround yourself with? Leading up to your diagnosis, how did you take care of you? And I don't necessarily mean physically exactly, but emotionally, mentally, did that help you take a a little bit more um, uh, inventory about how you take care of yourself just in a, in a complete way to, to make sure that if you're not here, (laughs) then it's kind of all for naught. And it's not necessarily a, a selfish thing. It's that, you know, in order to make the greatest impact, you've got to, you got to take care of yourself. Yeah. It makes you really realize that if you're not the best version of you, then you can't help others around you. And I think, you know, all throughout my life, like I was pretty active. I exercised. I really try to take care of myself, but I think just neglecting that doctor's appointment or neglecting little things here and there because of basketball now doesn't happen. You know, like Mm -hmm. if I have my appointment in Chapel Hill, it's on my calendar and I've to this day since my diagnosis have not ever rescheduled the doctor's appointment. Yeah, I understand now the level of priority and just honestly, you watch my Players' Tribune story, like one of the reasons why I feel as though I was successful in my fight against cancer because of how rigorous my treatments were was because I knew that if I didn't eat, I couldn't go to practice. I knew that if I didn't get, you know, if I knew if I didn't do the certain things that I needed to do, I couldn't coach basketball. Basketball has always been my motivation, my outlet of I've got to do X, Y, and Z so I can be the best at this. And um, it's, it's really, I, I said in the thing, it like saved my life, but I know other people who have gone through treatment and who don't want to eat and they don't want to get out of bed and they don't, they don't want to do things. And I just tell them like, what, what's your why? And if you could find your why, like cancer, it's not going to get you. And, you know, so I think now I take unbelievable care of myself. Like I've, this has been my best season yet. And it's no, it's not a you know coincidence that everything just kind of came together, but I, I make an hour. I leave. My coaches know I'm going to my trainer. Like I just walk out and they just know I have that standing appointment and I just do what I can to make sure that I'm the best me. And I, I love that question of why. And I've been contemplating that myself and in just my personal life here lately, like just why am I doing this? And it's so big. And, and I got to be honest with you, Angel, I haven't found that yet, but it's so important. I'm so glad you bring that up. And, and another thing I wanted to just ask you is who were some of the people that helped you get through during the treatment process? You know, obviously, um, my family, my family was from Rhode Island. They came down in North Carolina to try to help me. I can't even, I don't even want to start talking about listing people because I would feel bad 
leaving anybody out. Yeah, it's like you an know? acceptance speech. Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> it's like I. It was like Team Angel. Um, mm. You know, even one of my former players made bracelets that said Team Angel, and the amount of people that were willing to like fight for like when on the days that I didn't want to fight, and you know, my my team that year, like there was just. Anybody that I came in contact with always had something positive to say in this community. I was really scared to actually be open about my cancer, and it was one of the greatest things I did, and my administration here really helped me with that. But as soon as uh, I did you know, talk about it openly, I found out that it was the greatest gift because – now people wouldn't let me fight alone, but you know I had a, a really close group of people that were really in the trenches with me, and that really helped me helped me through it. You talked about how much you fell in love with Boone, North Carolina, just kind of passing through and walking around campus, but you weren't physically there or living there at that point. What have you learned about Boone and about Appalachian State since coming on board, and now you know uh, more than five years later? I was speaking to a, a, uh, a company last week, and in that moment, I said, throughout this offseason, I've defined the DNA of an App State women's basketball player. And in that moment of defining that DNA, I realized that my DNA is so much of what App State stands for as a university, as an athletic department, in the grittiness, in overcoming adversity in the college, small college town, in the family atmosphere. And it's like, it's, we're a match. You know, it's like, I, I go back to you winning life with the people you surround yourself with. Like, I took this job without knowing what a locker room, a facility, an office, anything looked like. It was because of the people. It was because of the chancellor. It was just because of the support that I knew that I was going to get. And you don't, like, you don't walk around this town without our players feeling loved, without me feeling loved. There's just, you know, the, the black and gold runs deep. Um, and it's a brand. It's wherever we're in the airport. It's like App State, Appy State, you know. But just that grittiness, I just feel like that's everything I am. Well, your team went on to win 22 games this last year. You made it to the WBI and won the thing. And I got to see you on your ultimate moment on that Wednesday when you guys cut down those nets and, and you came back, uh, you're down double digits early on against North Texas and overcame that to pick up that win. But what were some of the challenges of this past season and what did you have to overcome to even make uh, a WBI bid a possibility? You know, I think it started with our non-conference. We had had such a great summer and such a great fall and the spirits were high and everybody was ready um, to take the step. And then we open up at a UAB and, th and UAB was very good. Mm -hmm. And um, we don't, we don't do as well, you know, we don't do as well. And then you, you could see like the spirit kind of go down. Um, and then we go to a Georgia tech, which we know is going to be tough, but we play with them for three quarters. And I think that alone gave our team like a little bit more confidence, but the way we opened, I think they were kind of like, uh Oh, um, are we going back to the eight? you know, wins again, but then we kept the faith and then we come home and we, we start winning, um, these back to back, like really close games. And that was one of the things in the year before with the eight wins is we would be in the game in the fourth quarter and like, we just couldn't close. And so, you know, we, we don't, the, now the challenge becomes as a coach, okay, now you can string together a couple 
wins, how do you manage expectations of winning? You know, so so then those thoughts go in your head. And then, you know, we have a couple injuries, none, none of that were crazy, just little nicks and bruises where we had a couple guys out of the lineup. And then we're trying to get ready for conference play. And, and how do we get, we go to Clemson right before Christmas and we have just not a good game at all. And, and I go home at Christmas and I'm like, how do I get this team ready for some bell? And I'm racking my brain, racking my brain. And, and, you know, it's just, we, we get together as a group and we start reading the energy bus. And then every week we take a different chapter of this book and it, it just, it, the book just spoke to our team throughout, throughout our season, throughout our conference and every chapter, every week um, we have an activity and, and our players just really bought into that. But it, the challenges I think for us is more of like fatigue and travel and trying to keep legs fresh, trying to keep minds fresh. We got to February and I asked myself, did you train them too hard? You know, I, I really, I really thought that and I shut the gym down for two days and then I tried to get them back. Um, and this team, because we talk so much about winning a Sunbelt, tournament championship they just got a new life um come march and once you did make the wbi it is a tournament where you play on home floors and so it's not a neutral site tournament and you guys were extremely good at home this season you ended up 14 and 3 but how did that initial game where you had to go on the road and pick up the victory how did that um help spur the belief that the team had uh right at the start of the postseason yeah, that first game was the scariest because when I talked to the team about playing in the postseason after we lost to Little Rock, not a lot of them knew what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Then we got together Monday and said, we're still waiting. Our practice was just okay. We had been on the road for two straight weeks. So they were trying to get caught. They were trying to get caught up on schoolwork. Then we get the call and then we got to leave the next day. And I remember saying to our staff, when the bracket came out, I said, if we can get by this first game, we can win this thing. But this first game is going to be a complete gut check. Our kids don't know what's going on. They didn't really know about the WBI. We've been on the road for three weeks. We've got to get through this game. That game was, I mean, we got, we had foul trouble. We had fatigue. Um, we just had so many different things and we ended up pulling it out. And then what I always tried to do with them was like, in my administration was great. I was able to dangle a little bit of a carrot because it was like, all right, if we win, our next game's going to be at home. And then, so they knew that, okay, if we win this game, next round's going to be at home. And then they started seeing the bracket. They knew that we had played a Davidson. They knew that we had played a Marshall. So I, I think they started feeling really good about it. And then once um, we got by, I think it was, was Marshall next, I walk into the weight room. I give them a couple days off because they don't want to practice at this point. They just want to play these games. Okay, guys, if we, if we win on Saturday against Campbell, we're going to host the championship. And then, you know, they started talking to me about rings and cutting down the net and all these things. And I was like, yeah, we'll get rings. We'll cut down nets. Like, and they just, they said that they just, they ended up with this group chat of knowing like, hey, hey we're playing for a ring now. Um, and they just had a purpose and some clarity behind that. And you get to the championship game and North Texas comes out and their best players hitting shots early on. And you guys are down by 10. What do you think kept the belief in the team at that point? Because from from that point on, your team really dominated the game. I, I think it was – I honestly give a lot of credit to our team. You know, we called a couple timeouts to settle them down, say, you know what – 
okay, she's made a couple shots. Just keep doing what we're doing. They can't, you know, we got to keep running on them, keep putting pressure on them. We're at home. We had an unbelievable crowd, but the crowd was great. But I think to start the game, I, our players were nervous. You know, sure. they were in a championship game and 1,800 people, they haven't played in front of that many people at home. So I think there was a little bit of nerves, but I, I really do believe that the second quarter when we were able to, to close it before halftime, that gave us the chance to go back in the locker room, you know, just kind of talk about what we did bad. They knew they hadn't played a good first half. And then just before we went out in the third quarter, I said to them, the, the pain of watching somebody else cut nets on our home court is going to be greater than any pain you may feel right now. Like, let's go and finish this. And they came out in the third quarter, fourth quarter, and just dominated. It really did. And you got to cut down the nets. What was that moment like and what has the team said about it since well I'm glad that we're having this conversation today so it was great because in the summer I was trying to teach them how to win and what it took so I created this whole three-on-three tournament so I made them cut down nets a year ago Hmm. and so they were they all were like this is why she does what she does with these tournaments and cutting down the nets is because I wanted them to understand it. And, and I think it was, no, it was two days before that, the, when we played Campbell, I bought them all a pair of scissors and had them on their seats. And I was like, we're 40, 40 minutes, you know, closer to cutting down nets, you know? So like we kind of, we kind of played on that and they said it helped them because of their training in the summer. When you win a championship, you cut down nets. Yesterday we had our championship. We had our group that cut down nets and it was so powerful for me as a coach. It's one of those moments where you sit back and you're like, wow. And we're in the circle and we're talking, I'm, I'm asking the wrap up summer. And one of the, um, one of our leaders, Lapricia Stanley, you know, she had the net around her neck. She just cut it. And she's like, we did what we did this summer so we can all cut down the nets in March. And it was just kind of neat because her team had won and they, and it was like, they were kind of joking yesterday, like, Hey, we know how to do this now. And they walked up and they said, it's so much easier now to cut the net. So (laughs) um, it was just kind of one of those things we did. Well, I know that with uh, four starters back with, um, you know, a a huge roster back this next year that, uh, that hopes are going to be high. You know, for not only a WBI or a WNIT, but to try to win a very tough uh, Sunbelt Conference, which at the top of it, if people aren't, you know, familiar, you've got a couple WNIT teams. You've got, uh, of course, uh, UALR. Little Rock is always (laughs) so tough to get by every single year. Um, So... How do you what's what's the next step here besides, you know, the visualization of cutting down nets? How do you take it and actualize it into uh, really taking the next step as a program? Yeah, well, we had our first team meeting of the summer and we identified like what are those next steps together, you know, and like kind of painted a picture for them so like winning the wbi that's our comfort zone and then now we have all these goals that are outside the wbi and we play a very very tough song the sunbelt's the best it's ever been and it's great and and now how are we going to get there so those may be our goals of what we want to do there are teams in the sunbelt that we haven't been we haven't beaten a little rock we haven't been a uta um our group that we have now hasn't beaten troy and and so we have some goals as a program that, that we have but 
we really focused on, okay, how are we going to chase those goals every single day? And, and how are we going to get out of this comfort zone and get into this growth zone so then we can take the next step? And the proudest thing um, from the summer and just the way our team came back is success can distract you. And there's no doubt about it. But success has not distracted our group one bit. If anything, it's really that WBI moment for us laid a foundation that now our players want to take the next step. And I think they feel as though when there was clarity of the mission, when there was clarity of the purpose of what we wanted to do, they were able to come together and do it. And so now it's like, what is that next step for us? Let's plant, let's be ready to take that next step. And I feel like we have a program, we have players, we have coaches that we were all on the same page and all on the same mission. I was very impressed with, you know, just the depth of your offense, uh, of the the way you can score at every level and pretty much in every way. Um, but at the same time, the awesome stat from last season is when you hold teams to 70 or less, you guys were 20 and 0 last year, 20, 20 and zero when you hold them to 70 yeah. or less. Um, so is that the main focus here is getting your defense the, the best it can possibly be? Because you know that most of the time um, you've got the, the horses to score. You know, it's interesting that you bring that up because we talk about this as a coaching staff all the time about offense and defense. And one of the things we learned um, throughout our offseason last year, and my assistant coaches are great at breaking this down, um, assistant coach, Coach Pierce, Sam Pierce, he's really into the defensive side of the ball. And we were realizing that we were turning the ball over. Um, we cut back, I don't know if it was ended up anywhere between five to seven turnovers. Mm. But in the grand scheme of a game, five to seven turnovers is 10 to 14 points. And so we were like, if we stop giving teams runouts and we take care of the ball better, that's going to improve our defense. So that was one of the things that was really great about our team is that we focused a lot about and turnovers last year. So obviously we gave ourselves more opportunities to score and we had players in all five positions that could score the ball. That helps defensively. Um, I think my assistant coaches do a really great job of just preparing scouting reports, knowing the other team's tendencies and kind of building those tendencies throughout our off season. So our players are ready Um to shut down our opponents. But, you know, we understood if we kept them under 70, our game goal um, between us is like, we want to keep teams under 60. You know, the 70 was a great stat, but we don't, we don't want to give up that many points because we know on any given night, we can have a bad shooting night. <laughs> oh, I hear you. But uh, it, it was uh, a very impressive stat. And it, here at Her Hoop Stats, uh, that is what we love. <laughs> we love impressive stats. So I uh, certainly wish you guys the best as you as you try to move forward in, you know, wrapping up every part that will help you take it to the next level. I want to close with this uh, four year extension in the off season. What did that mean to you personally with with all that you've been through and, and just with, you know, your dedication to App State, yet some years the wins weren't there. So what did it mean to you to put pen to paper on that this offseason? It meant a lot. First and foremost, you know, like after my third year and things weren't going good, um, my athletic director, Doug Allen, you know, is like, you're our coach, you're our person, we believe in you. Um, and that leadership right there, um, he gave me, you know, just the confidence to kind of change some things, do some things. He was patient and that doesn't always happen. He, he was really understanding that you, we were transitioning leagues and, and all of that was going to take time. Secondly, um, my sport administrator, 
um, Brittany Whiteside, she called me during the season. I'll, and I won't forget this moment. It was, we were getting ready to our Georgia swing and, and she called and she wanted to talk to me about some of the postseason tournaments that were talking to her. And, and she said, we, we want to talk about um, you long-term at app. And I just thought that was a really, um, I just thought that was just unbelievable that they would do it like in February. So it was January or February. So we talked, we came back and she said, you know, we really want to extend you. Here's what we want to do. And I said, you know, this is amazing. And then our season kept going and they were always like, when are we going to announce this? And I, I didn't want any, anything on me. You know, I was like, I want all the focus right now to be on our team and everything kind of like happened, like amazing. How I was like, we won. And then they announced my extension. But I think um, just, the loyalty that my athletic department shown prior to even winning the WBI prior to even a postseason in the Sun Belt, um, their commitment was shown to me in January and February. And I think just speaks volumes to, to them as leaders. An athletic department is, is like a business. It's like an organization. It's only as, as good as the, the people at the top. You know, if you've got the right people there, it helps keep people around for a long, long time. Good people like you. So, Angel, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for telling us your story. And uh, we're so excited for your program and where you're taking it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you giving me a platform today to just talk about a variety of different things. And hopefully it'll, it'll touch somebody out there. There, but thank you again for this opportunity. Angel Elderkin, the head coach of Appalachian State, really appreciate her time. And man, is that somebody that has a story to tell? And she is going to tell it until she is blue in the face. She has a purpose in life. And it's just a, a lovely conversation. Really appreciate her time. Uh, remember, we've got all kinds of different ways that you can follow us, including our Twitter account at HerHoopStats. That thing is always pumping out great content. Also, if you have a suggestion for an interview on the podcast, you can email us, podcast at HerHoopStats.com, podcast at HerHoopStats.com. Also, you can just at me on Twitter if you want to. I'm at John Little Voice, J-O-H-N-L-I-D-D-L-E, voice and i could get it that way as well we've got some wnba coming up for you next week a really cool interview scheduled with a wnba player who is starting for a team that is threatening one of those top two spots in the wnba regular season so you want to be around for that next week really looking forward to bringing that to you and of course the unplugged segment of the podcast coming up midweek wednesday night into thursday morning Again, huge thanks to Angel Elderkin and Chase Colleton, the SID at Appalachian State, who helped me get that set up and uh, get with her. In fact, he reached out to me. I, I knew all about her story, but uh, what a great idea to have her on. I really appreciate Chase's help with that. The announcer on the Her Hoop Stats podcast is Susie Solis. Our music by Jared Deck, jareddeckmusic.com. And there's plenty more where that came from. And Aaron Barzilai is the executive producer of the Her Hoop Stats podcast. This is John Little reminding you at the Her Hoop Stats podcast, we are unlocking better insight about the women's game. Her Hoop Stats.